be bold enough that you do what you know how to do, and if it doesn't work, you learn something else or change it. Be willing to make the mistake in front of everybody. It's not like they haven't made any, and if they're pretending they haven't, or if you're around very, very pompous people that are into exclusivity, well, don't take them seriously. You want to transform yourself and improve your life. You long to help people. You wish to become healthier, happier, and more successful. This show is your opportunity to learn how to use hypnosis to make your life better. Each week, hypnotist Robbie Spear Miller interviews people who have already changed their lives in amazing ways with hypnosis. These models can help you discover your path to making the most of your life. If you want to learn how hypnosis can help you reach your goals, this show is for you. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Spear Miller, and I'm the host of the Hypnosis Show podcast. Today, we're welcoming Scott McFall, who's my longtime mentor, and he's been on a guest on, a guest on the podcast before. And today, I'm really looking forward to talking to him about how people who maybe you're not naturally somebody who uh, enjoys doing things like sales or feels comfortable charging for money, how you can interact with building your business in a way that works for everybody. Because we're really in the business of helping people. And because we help people get results, that's why they pay us. Um, it's good for them to pay us because uh, it means that they value it. And, and so really my goal and my outcome for today is to help you learn how to get comfortable with that and uh, get the skills you need to be able to run your whatever business you're in in a way that works best. So welcome, Scott. Hi, Robbie. How are you? Good. How about you? Fabulous. So um, what's your big question today? All right. Well, in terms of the the people that I work with, and, and this is true whether they're people learning to be hypnotists or they work in other fields, a lot of people are really uncomfortable with selling themselves. Like I've, I even have uh, people I know who work in business and they're okay with working for a company because somehow the company gives the, them this uh, permission to do what they do. But they'll say, if I had to go out on my own as a consultant to sell my services, or if I was in sales, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that, or I couldn't do that. And so I'm really wanting to help people um, wrap their minds around how to interact with people in a way that helps them best. And I know one of the things that I remember very well, you said once was that there is only one profession in the whole world, which is sales. And if we're going to pretend that that's not true, we're basically not learning how to help people the best we can. So tell us a little bit about your, and and as we talk about this, I, I know that you grew up with sales, like your dad was a salesperson and he was really awesome at it. So you have a lot of background in, in viewing sales very differently than a lot of other people do. Okay. So Robbie, I'm going to, I'm just going to openly talk about this for a minute. Yeah. I apologize for the soliloquy, but I'm going to do a little soliloquy for a minute. Um, First of all, selling is getting people what they want and need. Uh, a mature salesperson gets people what they want and need, sometimes helping them to discover what it is that they actually want and need. In the same sense that a great teacher might know what a student needs to learn more than the student's original desire to learn. So <clears throat> becoming a great salesperson and you were talking about two different things, being a great salesperson, which is about knowing how to 
communicate brilliantly. Now, not necessarily know how to persuade, but know how to communicate brilliantly. And that also means knowing when to not speak. But there's dependent people. Those are the people who are dependent on their mom and dad. And then sometimes they go into the military and they're dependent on the military. And then they're dependent on a company they work for. And they don't realize they've technically never grown up. So a person can have a doctorate and still be dependency-based in their maturity. A person can have a degree in engineering. A person can have a PhD. A person can have eight master's degrees and still be dependency-based in their thinking. And as a matter of fact, they can keep getting various layers of education to avoid facing independence. Independence is scary at first because you're to blame. It's your deal. And so when you're working for yourself, you have nobody to blame but you. Circumstances change and you either adapt or you don't. So I think the first concept that's crossing my mind as you speak is a lot of these people who are leaving their jobs and going to work for themselves are having a very big maturity drama as they go from dependent to truly independent. Then they have another maturity drama when it's time to be intra-dependent and cooperate within teams when they just got proud of being independent. Now, for some people, this happens at 70 years old. Some people, it happens at 50. Some people, it happens at 16. Some people, it happens at 10. But being comfortable with the risk and understanding how to manage risk is one of the maturity skills that people who are great at marketing, connecting, and connecting the people who need what you sell with what you're selling, that maturity is necessary. And it's not as common as you might think because you can be incredibly smart and not good at being independent. You can be incredibly, incredibly talented and not be great at being independent. So being charming is wonderful. But if people are only buying from you because you're charming, that's not really helping them. So the first thing a great salesperson has is they sort by others and want to get the other person what they need. They want the other person to actually have a return on their investment, either saving time or making money or saving money. But a great salesperson cares about what happens to the person they're con communicating with. They're about people more than they're about the product. They're about people more than they're about the product. So it doesn't matter what you're selling. You could be selling helping humans change. You could be selling doing a great job. You could be selling consulting. You could be selling widgets. But Robbie, in the modern world, we have a new problem. And that's the internet. So in the old days, we helped people decide what they're going to buy. But in the new world, people come up with something they want. They search for exactly that. They don't really compare. They think they are because they're jumping from website to website, but they're not actually looking at multiple solutions. They're looking in a very straight line. So it goes attention, interest, consideration, conversion, and advocacy. That's how the internet works. The, the weird thing is there isn't any salesmanship in that. None. It works the same as flipping a coin. There's no actual good connected 
understanding of what the customer needs and how you're giving it to them. Not really. So it's harder to teach great connection and sales now than it has ever been. So my, my first answer to you is, do the people care about the other people more than they care about their own agenda? Because if they don't, they can't be a great salesperson. Do they have the maturity to tolerate the risk of being independent? Which is very rare today. So I don't know if that matches your experience, but that's my first thoughts on your question. Yeah, and I think a lot of people that I've seen are what they struggle with is that they are actually very well-meaning. They're almost like perfectionists about what they wanted to deliver to people. And so they get very self-sorted because of it. They're worried and in fear that they're going to fail the other person or not do enough, a good enough job or be humiliated or something. And so because of it, it's very hard for them to actually focus on the other person because that's running. Um, because if we're feeling in fear, even with good intentions, it's hard to... In 1985, we'd have called that performance anxiety. Yes. We'd have said that they had, uh, that they were too self-conscious and that they were not taking in the outside world because they had performance pressure, performance anxiety. We'd have called it too much self-consciousness. Now it's a way of life. It's the rule. It's not the exception. It's the rule now. Mm -hmm. So a fish doesn't know it's wet. So if you're working with someone and they're with 50 other people at a company and they all feel that way, they don't even know it's odd. Right. Isn't that fascinating? It sure is. And, and I, I personally get it. I, I, you know, I used to feel this way a lot. And when I started my hypnosis business, I think what really pushed me is that I didn't feel like I had a choice. I had to make it work. So I was willing to take risks. But before then, I had other things I could do. I mean, I, I could have chosen something else, but I decided I really wanted to make this work. I think that if you don't mind my exposing some of your journey, um, sure. you had a very stressful journey. And I was one of the advisors on your, your journey. And uh, once you've got it down, once something is working, it's very hard to remember what it felt like when it wasn't working. Mm-hmm. It's like it's missing right? Because the competencies that you possess now, they didn't always exist. Mm -hmm. So that's another theme we need to talk about. A great salesperson is very good at transforming, finding out new information and changing everything they're doing. And how many people do you know that are naturally good at that in the modern world? There aren't that many. Despite what the self-help books tell you. When put to the test, most people do the routine they know. Yes, that's really true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a great salesperson, a great entrepreneur, a great mature genius knows that they're not going to stay the same person, that staying the same person isn't one of the options. So, you know, talk a little bit about what you go through with that. Well, I, I think what really made me change was having, feeling feeling like it was very necessary for me to take action. And by doing things, I discovered what was possible. But before that, I was looking at the world through what I knew before, whether it was from my family of origin or the work experience I had or my own fears. 
And so I didn't even know what was possible because I hadn't done it. Well, it's important to note that your family is very successful in general. Almost everyone in your family is a high achiever. Yes, that's true. Very smart people. Uh, but they were high achievers within a certain system. That's right. You know, so winging it as an entrepreneur is different than working for a hospital. It yeah. just is. And so most people go back to where there's a paint-by-numbers kit, even if it's a very advanced paint-by-numbers kit. Mm -hmm. Prospecting is a very different activity. Making it rain on your own is a different activity. Although there were systems, like in my practice building systems you used when you started and whatnot, they're very loose. They're very broad, which used to drive you crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, but what fixes that is what's missing is the part the customer gives you, the part the client fills in. It is very hard to get people to trust that when they're coming in as therapists to get them to trust everything that's missing, do not fill it in because it's where the variables of how all of the clients act fit. So in NLP, we talk about deliberate versus spontaneous. Is the person having to have it be deliberate or can they be spontaneous? You and I are very different in our natural state. You are a very deliberate person with great organizational skill. I am a very spontaneous person. I want to improvise it. But the very best salespeople are both. So I have to work very hard when it's time to be deliberate because I would rather be spontaneous. Mm -hmm. Now I take that on the chin and I know, well, I have to suck it up and do that. But for yourself, you know, when you have to be hyper spontaneous, you have to suck it up and do that. But that's what behavior flexibility is all about. And so a great consultant is going to help that salesperson be played counter to type mm -hmm. and become more and more flexible. You mentioned a story when we were talking earlier that my dad uh, lived through when he was helping train a young salesperson. And it's in the beginning of Power Secrets of Sales Magic, the little handout that we did for sales seminars years ago. And I would refer the viewer to that booklet. You can down, I'll give you permission to let them download it if, or you can send it out to them if they request it or whatever. Okay. But that, that story is my dad taking a salesman in and that salesman failed to sell a family that really needed the education for their son. And the salesman blew it. And when we were standing on the doorstep, my dad just told the guy not to speak, knocked on the door. And by the time my dad was done getting the pen he left on the kitchen table, they had purchased the training. Everything was fine. And the, the father of the young man who was entering the training said, well, Jim, you're a really great guy. I'm really glad I met you, but you shouldn't be a salesman. You're too nice to be a salesman. You know? And it's, it's important to understand that a great salesperson is just giving people the confidence to do what they needed to do in the first place. Whether it's in writing or putting a website together correctly or doing the videos that help someone, you're setting up the ability to have the confidence to do what they need to do in the first place. That's what a great salesperson does. Are you independently matured 
Or are you looking for approval from others in such a way that you're really like you're a dependent? You need the praise or you need the punishment. Are you operating like a dependent or comfortably independent? Mm -hmm. The opposite of comfortably independent would be having to get mad or upset to be motivated, where people are resentful instead of calm. So you, you do need to believe in what you're doing. You need to feel a sense of mission, in my opinion. To be great at what you're doing, you need a sense of mission. Like in running the hypnosis clinics, you know, you're helping people quit smoking, lose weight, quit biting their nails, uh, get, get rid of pain. It's easy to feel a sense of mission, especially if you're good at the job, because there are lives that are somewhat improved a high percentage of the time. But it doesn't matter if you're helping someone with nutrition or if you're selling chiropractic services, or you're a medical doctor in private practice, or if you're consulting for a retailer that's helping people to have the goods and services they need at a price that they can actually afford. All of these things, if you're doing them, you yourself need to feel a sense of mission about why it matters. That sense of mission will push you through the times that you have an obstacle or, or are exhausted. That sense of mission is what saves you. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense of mission? I do. And, and for sure. And if I hadn't, it would have been, it would have been hard to be inspired to be willing to take the path I have and learn all the things I've learned. Cause I knew that I wanted to help people and make a difference and realize the potential of what I could give to other people. So I had been frustrated enough with not with feeling stuck about that for long enough that I knew I needed a, to step up to the plate. So yes, I think the mission is really key. It, it takes you through the, the rough patches. Yeah. Maybe there's stages of this. Maybe at one point we're doing good work to get praise or avoid criticism ourselves and to avoid a sense of foreboding disaster if we don't have enough money or whatever. So maybe in the beginning, there's a lot of self-centered motivation as we start. Mm -hmm. But eventually, great sales is about being a great educator. And it's about what the other people get, not about what we get. And when we, when we hit that level of maturity, we can pretend we have it even when we don't. You know, you can kind of feign it until you get it, you know. Uh, act as if you have it. Understand the point of having that maturity, even when you're a little bit pressured as, as you begin your career, or you begin the process. And it helps you to remember to ask yourself, what's the outcome for that other person? And can I see what they need to see in order to know it was worth it? In the back of my head, I always think, are they going to get 10 times more than what they paid for? And that's why I have so many people who've worked with me for you know, some of them 20, 25 years now. It's because they're still getting a return on investment, you see. Without that return on investment, they'd be down the road. And ironically, if something happens to return on investment, even a very loyal client is, is missing in action very quickly if they're not getting what they came for. It's shocking how fast, as a matter of fact. You know? So you, you want to make sure that you're giving them that return on investment, that, that the reciprocity is really operating in the right way, and that loyalty is caused by their self-interest. Mm -hmm. Thoughts? Well, I, I think everything you're saying is really valid. And um, 
I'm just wondering if we could explore a little more how to bridge people from having the performance anxiety we were talking about to being able to be more others sorted and, and focused on the mission of what they'll get. Well, at the risk of boring you, because you've definitely heard me talk about this before, um, people do not get over that because things go well. They get over it finding out they don't die when things go wrong. Mm -hmm. A great comedian has to be willing to bomb. Confidence and security comes from knowing that the risks are not as bad as you thought and you're succeeding or getting a few good things to happen and then more and more. But a person who succeeds all the time is still actually running with phantom fear, believing if one thing goes wrong, that they're going to be in total Hades. That's what they really feel. So if you don't have both success and failure at this level, they're in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. My understanding of that is the way that I handle people their first year of working with me, especially before they paid me when they're in mentorships with me. And it, it confuses many folks who are watching it from the outside because I want to watch them succeed and fail. And I make sure that I have watched them do both. And that I understand what their coping skills are if things go wrong and if things go right. So it's important if you're going to be independent that you know that not everything's going to work and you need an excellent coping skill for when it doesn't work. Is, is that fair? It is. And I think a lot of people live in fear of things not going well. And I, and what you're saying is absolutely true because when I first started, and this was before I even met you, uh, I was working as a hypnotist before you started mentoring me. Things did happen that were in my old life, I would have been mortified and I just had to move through it and, and deal with it. And I realized it wasn't as big a deal as I thought, as I'd made it. So I had a lot mm -hmm. of real life experiences like that. And, and so I think that since then, with all of my experiences, what I've discovered is that when things go really bad, you actually learn the most. So when things don't go well now, I actually am usually able to appreciate it faster because I know even if I don't know what I'm going to learn yet, I know I'm going to learn something really important from what happened. Let me point this out. That's awesome, Robbie. And, and let me add to that. Let me give some specifics. Um. I had a, a major issue, you know, as being a young heart patient, you know, nothing was my fault. I was born very premature. I had a lot of health problems. And a lot of the challenges that I went through in my young life, I did not create. Well, what that made me think is, it's not my fault. So I had to learn when it was my fault. I came to that late in life, meaning like mid-teens, and then really hardcore at like 18, 19, 20, 21, right in that time frame. And I was already highly visible because I was doing stage shows in front of hundreds of people, thousands of people sometimes. And so mistakes were huge and costly. Well, eventually I kind of got control of my maturity level there and began to succeed more and more and became a dad and went through various things. Relationships came and went. And I, I began to know when it was my fault and when it wasn't. But eventually, when things would happen because of other folks or something would happen that was odd or being sabotaged because of being highly visible, 
it would fire off that old strategy of it's not my fault. Make sense? Mm -hmm. And I would regress. One of the examples is I was once slipped a uh, drug when I was performing for a large auto show. And uh, after the show, it wasn't before the performance, but after the show, somebody slipped something to me and I literally went away. Like I was sitting there and I was, I, my hand went in front of my face and I saw three or four hands going in front of my face. I'm like, oh no. And I was so mad. I was so angry that this had happened, but it's still my fault. And I didn't think it was my fault at the time. And eventually I understood if I was going to be highly visible in front of hundreds and hundreds of people, and there are going to be people that love me and people that hate my guts. That's just how it is. 20% of the people are going to love you. 60% are going to be your lukewarm and 20% are not going to like you. That's just how it is. And so three steps before the problem is where the solution is. So the solution to that kind of thing is never consume anything on site when you're the most visible person in the room unless you carried it in yourself. And it's really a good rule, by the way. I recommend it for corporate speakers, performers. It's a really smart thing. If you're singing in the corner of a room, it's probably not that big a deal. But if you're giving feedback and being direct and possibly going to give a position under which someone else could disagree, I strongly urge you to bring your own stuff. And a lot of people wouldn't know that was necessary. The reason that I bring up the story is it's very easy to say I was victimized, but that's not true. I easily could have controlled that scenario. I just didn't. So the more you can take it on the chin and realize that was my fault, I could have handled that differently. I should have done that differently. The faster you're going to become a sales superstar or a marketing superstar or a business owner superstar. And then what you'll wish is you could have that superstardom anonymously, but that's not how it works, you know. But once once you have high visibility, you wish you could give it back. Yeah, I, I could imagine that. So so one thing to clarify for people is that we I've noticed, and I, I've certainly fallen into this category, and a lot of students do, where they want to have all their ducks in a row before they do anything. And what you're really saying is you got to be willing to get out there and do things. And by doing them and having these things happen, like the, the problem with the drug that you got, that you learn the lesson by experience. And that, that the learning takes a lot longer and often doesn't happen if we're not willing to learn by experience. But some people might take your story and say, I have to plan everything. I better make sure everything's in place before I do anything. Yeah, and that's not really what I'm saying at all. Yeah, I think, I, I think that um, what I'm trying to say is be bold enough that you do what you know how to do. And if it doesn't work, you learn something else or change it. You know, be willing to make the mistake in front of everybody. It's not like they haven't made any. And if they're pretending they haven't, or if you're around very, very pompous people that are into exclusivity, well, don't take them seriously. Or you could turn into one of those creepy people. Like, make sure that you understand that people are into avoiding guilt, pain, and loss, or they're into chasing greed, exclusivity, or gain. And you don't ever want to actually fall into buying that. 
you want success, you want, and whatever that means, you know, but you want to be growing and learning and, and have the resources that you need coming to you, but you want to be giving the value that they're paying for and more. And so you can't go through life inside feeling that level of competition or the need for their group approval, or you will not be able to grow. Because instead of feeling discovery, you would feel shame. Yes, I think that's a really important point, that that when you learn, you just want to say, oh, thank God I learned that, and move on. And when, when people get caught up in shame, they're just working to, well, they feel bad, and then they also do everything they can to prevent it from happening again, but not, not in a useful way. Clyde Abel said, boldness in business is the first, second, and third thing. So when you look at, like, neurolinguistics is a big part of a lot of sales communication nowadays, and look at the three people they modeled for NLP. It would be Virginia Satir, Milton Erickson, and Fritz Perls. Well, they're all very bold about the positions they take in life, and they've all been able to change their position later with more information. But they're very bold about what they know at the time they're presenting it. They're not timid. They're not saying, well, maybe sort of a little, it's kind of like this, you know. They're bold. Well, what happens when you're bold is, if it isn't working, you find out. You find out right away. And if you're sensory aware and flexible, you change it because you need to keep permission to be bold, so you fix it. You fix it. Now, it's true that some people are just stubborn, and that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about being bold. I'm saying, you toss it out there, and when you toss it out there, it either works or it doesn't. And if you're open, you're willing to shift it if it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so that that willingness to um, have a chance for a redo, we could call it, that you can have an experience, get some feedback, and then come at it again instead of retreating in shame is really where the the like that's where the richness of all this comes from and the learning. Yeah, and it, yes, and it's not just about avoiding retreating in shame. It's the idea that shame has no point in adulthood. It's one of the ways we learn our conscience as a child. But assuming you have a conscience, I really think you're better off with the standard slogan that does come from that neurolinguistics world. Behavior should either be appreciated or changed. If you don't appreciate it, change it. But, but none of this, uh, woe is me, oh, geez, I blah, blah, blah. No self-persecution, no martyr complex. Just appreciate it or shift it to what it should be. Right? Mm-hmm. So the, the thing that I'm suggesting, Robbie, with regard to connecting to other people. You know, I've taught so many people how to do rapport in the thousands of seminars and workshop rooms and people. And it doesn't always work out, you know. You're teaching them to match breath rate and tone and pace and volume. And what you're really teaching them to do is empathize. Like you're teaching them to become the other person and then feel in their heart or their head what that other person is feeling. Not literally, but damn close. And see, great great leaders are good at that. Great managers are good at that. Great salespeople are good at that. Great therapists are good at that. But the greatest can shift from getting that empathy and then pop back to objective and look at the outcome. And what they're really selling or helping the person with is 
what's going to get them closer to their outcome? This person has 10 acres. Do I want to sell them a push mower or a riding mower? Well, if I care about them, I'm going to sell them a riding mower. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. And I think that's a really important shift for a lot of people because I've seen a lot of people who really, they do care about people. They want to help, but they're getting their their self-esteem or their own needs met from being of help to people and they can't step out of it. They can't get perspective to see what the person actually needs. There's a huge difference between I'm good because I'm helping or Bill's doing well because I help Bill do well. Or Joni's doing well because I help Joni do well. There's a huge difference between I'm a healthy helper, therefore I'm a good person, and I'm ordinary like everybody else, and I like watching Bill succeed. Huge difference between these two things. And most of the people who are healthy helpers are the first one. They're not teachers yet they're um it's like they have guilt for being happy successful good looking or having money or being liked they have some kind of guilt for their own existence so they think i'm good because i help and that's that's still about them it's better than being bad but it's not the same thing as being a teacher watching somebody else do great Right. And you see how backwards it is too, because somebody's paying you or coming to see you for help. And if you're, you're needing more from them than they're needing from you, if that's how you're. If you need their appreciation, that's true. If you need their approval, that's true. If you need their admiration, that's true. That's why narcissists are bad therapists. Because they need the admiration more than they need to help the other person. So, and by the way, in transference, tons of clients attach and throw admiration at that narcissist, and the narcissist thinks they're doing great. But they're not. I once knew a person who will remain completely nameless, but I once had a therapist client who was one of the trainers where the person thought they were doing fantastic. And I went to the office of this person and found out that the person had a 75% client quit rate before the end of the programs. And that person couldn't process that there was a problem. Hmm. Only 25% of the clients got anywhere near finishing the program. And yet this person could only remember the compliments and all the hundreds of situations that had gone wrong were invisible to that person. And I'm standing in the office going, where do I start? What do I do? Because you either were complimenting that person or you were just wrong in that person's mind. Fascinating, isn't it? It sure is. And then you look at the opposite where people could be doing great with most of their clients and they'll get one that they have a challenge with and it eclipses everything else. I was that person. And I can think of, I can think of whole months that I would lay in bed at night worrying to the point of just ludicrousness. And it would even be when I was smart enough to refer them out, to let them go, to send them to their MD or their psychiatrist or whatever was going on. And I would just be so worried, you know, and I'd have 200 successful cases going on and 12 going bad at the time. And all I would think about is the 12 that were going bad. Darn near lose my mind stressing out about it. 
So it took a long time to learn how to even drive away from the building, not carrying them with me. But see, that's a form of having your identity in it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of reverse transference. And there's a real sweet spot for this because we definitely want to care about our clients. We want to to uh, notice when we need to improve or get feedback. And the truth is there's some people who we do need to let go or who we can't help for whatever reason. And for sure. so it's a, it's a very gray area. Sometimes as a salesperson, the best thing you can do to help someone is refer them to your competition. So if you were to do that, like, what is it you think would be the most helpful about that for them? It's the trust issue because you're, fi- you're showing there's times when what you're doing for someone is you're helping them to realize no one's trying to take advantage of them. And you've met a lot of people who over the years, they've signed up with me 10 years after they met me, five years after they met me. So you've seen how this pays off, sometimes in two years, sometimes in one year. But if you don't have a whole life of doing it, you can't see the long game. Mm -hmm. So you're basically saying that doing that would be giving them a real-life experience where they can discover what they really need or what genuinely helps them. Yep, and they realize they've met somebody who isn't needy of their money or their approval or anything, that the person was telling them a reality external that was objective, that alone builds trust in a way that you can't imagine mm-hmm. if you've never done it before. Yeah. So it's not as easy as one would think to become objective because we all have needs, but they do need to be set aside during the time you're playing the game. Does that make sense? It sure does. Yeah. I would end with the idea that Milton Erickson once worked on a young man who was afraid to ask anybody out. And although the story is more graphic in reality than the way I'm going to tell it today, uh, basically Milton made the young man talk to a hundred young ladies in a row. And of course, eventually he realized by numbers, quite a few of them liked him. They didn't all like him. But in his mind, before that little exercise, he thought none of them were going to like him. In sales, sometimes it's really you've got to talk to enough people to realize that there's enough out there that need what you're doing that you can be confident about your future. Great. All right. So so share with people how they can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about what you do. Um, you know, the easiest way is just to go to hypnosisconnection.com and click on an email, uh, link. There will be a few there and just send me what you want to say and I'll respond to you. Um, and there are phone contact, uh, links and whatnot on there as well, but hypnosisconnection.com is the easiest way. Okay, great. And if people are interested in finding out more about hypnosis training, whether it's to learn sales or help themselves or build an exciting career as a hypnotist, you can go to hypnosistraininghanada.com. We have a lot of free resources there for you to download. And um, when you're ready, you can set up a free consultation to see if the training's a good fit for you. 
So thanks, Scott. I think that we covered a lot of really important points here. So thanks for helping with that. Cool. Thanks for having me. Join us for next week's podcast, where we will be exploring how you can use positive thinking to your advantage and also where positive thinking can get in the way of success. We will be visiting with hypnotist Jay Luck about his real-life pirate adventures and what his high-flying experiences have taught him about creating possibility and managing risk. If you're wanting to discover more about how hypnosis training can help you, go to hypnosistrainingcanada.com and schedule your free consultation. Remember to click the button to subscribe, share this podcast with a friend, and please leave us a review so you can help others to benefit from the podcast too. Until next week. You've been listening to The Hypnosis Show with Robbie Spear Miller. Tune in next time to learn more about how you can change your life with hypnosis. And if you are interested in learning more about training opportunities, go to hypnosistrainingcanada.com and schedule a free consultation.